<laughs> it's great to be back with you guys. It's been some time. I think I think I did preach here um, during the pandemic, but um, it was, yeah, yeah, I think it was filmed. And so I think this is the first time I've been able to be with you guys in person. Do I need to move more this way? Okay. Do I have to take a step back? But I want to be close. I want to be close to people. Okay. Jeremiah, I'm not going to let you tell me everything to do, okay? <laughs> Jeremiah, what was that? Walk behind the camera. Oh, that's what you're saying. That's what I should do. Okay, yeah, I will, I will definitely consider that. Um, it's good to be back with you guys. I know last week you had a 30-year celebration of Chinese Church in Christ South Valley, and I, I didn't get to be here. Um, but I just want to say, like, that's really exciting. Congratulations. And I think um, one of the things that I've realized about my spiritual journey is um, I just came from Quicksilver, and one of the things we talked about today was being a church that plants churches. Um, but that starts with, but my journey started with a church plant, right? I, I, I was part, I'm, I'm leading a church plant, but my journey started, my spiritual journey started with Chinese Church in Christ South Valley being planted 30 years ago in 1992 when I was a junior in high school. Um, and so the, uh, South Valley gets to claim me, and it's, it's, my dad told me this, he's like, it's claim me as fruit, right? Because I'm being sent out to make other disciples because that's what church planting is. Church planting is just the process um, the journey of making disciples. And so um, as much as Garden City wants to say, oh yeah, we formed Fred and made Fred a disciple, really, I was made a disciple here. Okay, so it's actually on, I'm on camera saying that, so um, they could watch it and be upset. But anyways, but I, I'm okay with that because this is, this is my spiritual home. Chinese Church in Christ South Valley is my spiritual home. Um, I was like brought up here in the faith. Um, I was discipled by people like Dan and Dan and my parents and others and Tom Chow and Sean Chow. And there's a whole lineage of saints who invested in me and who I've invested in. Um, and so it is a privilege for me to return because we are just part of this uh, journey of making disciples. And I am that fruit. And I hope that someday some of you will be up here talking about how you were invested in by Dan or Dan, um, and now you're the, you're their fruit. You will be their fruit too, and someone else is going to be fruit for you. Okay, and that's what it means for generations of disciples to be transformed, um, to be healed. I think you mentioned and set free, um, and experience those type of things. Um, but I did want to I did want to transition to this idea of I mean we're talking about discipleship. Discipleship spreads, and I want to think about all the different things that spread. And I think the most obvious thing that spreads that we've been thinking about is COVID. COVID spreads. Um, along with COVID spreading, you have depression and anxiety that also spread. But there are good things that spread. There are good things that have spread during the pandemic. And I just want you guys to pause for a second um, and think about, you know, what are some of the good things that have spread over the past couple of years? Okay. The thing, the beacon of light that comes to mind for me is TikTok. Thank you, Dan. Okay. Um, so it's probably debatable, right? It's debatable whether TikTok is like a beacon of light. Okay. Does anyone, does anyone use TikTok? Anyone here use TikTok? Can you raise your hand if you use TikTok? Does seriously no one? Okay. Like two of you. Okay. Man, I thought this was going to be a place where TikTok had spread, but obviously maybe not. That's okay. Um, I have been introduced to TikTok in various ways. Okay. But most recently, I've been in So I, I, I just heard about from my cousin. There's this thing called Swift Talk. Do you guys know about Swift Talk? It's Taylor Swift's TikTok. I just realized there's something about that. But I've been introduced by a non-Christian friend to an area of TikTok that's the Christian TikTok. There's like a lot of 
like church and Christian content on TikTok. Um, and it's got like various things like, you know, holding the TV when you, when you worship, it's called holding the TV, right? When you go, I can't do it. I can't do it with both hands here. Um, and there's, there's just all these different things within TikTok and TikTok has become incredibly popular in the past few years and has spread. And I have worked very hard for it not to spread to me. Okay. I've worked very hard. I do not have the app, but I'm actually, um, because of this friend of mine who is not a Christian, but he watches Christian TikToks. I'm actually thinking that like I should go for it. Okay. That I should install TikTok and then watch Christian TikToks. Anybody with me? Anybody want to do that with me? Jeremiah? No. Okay. Daniel's no. Okay. So that idea is not going to spread. Okay. That idea is not going to spread. So let's, but let's, let's look at the Bible and let's, let's figure out and let's see what are some ideas that do spread? What are some things that do spread? And, um, in Quicksilver, we've been journeying through the, the gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. I don't have slides today. Um, I don't, I normally don't use slides. So if you can turn with me to Mark chapter four and we're going to be, I'm sorry, Mark chapter, it's not four. Mark chapter two. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter two, um, and we're going to start with the story at the beginning of chapter two. That is the sound of two Bibles, three Bibles being opened, and the rest of you have your Bible on your phone, which is awesome. Okay, I'm going to read um, Mark chapter two, verses one through twelve. And when he, this is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And then when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, so I have three points that I want to make. Number one, that Jesus is a disruptive influence and also the highest authority. Second is the way that disease spreads. And then lastly, I want to talk about the nature of forgiveness. Um, and so in this section, what we're seeing here is Jesus is a disruptive influence. And in pretty much every um, story that we're going to look at in chapter two, and we're not going to talk about all of them. Actually, we're going to go backwards in chapter one. But in each, um, in each encounter that Jesus has with people, at every point, someone asks Jesus a question. And it's not because uh, they, they're curious, but almost every person who asks Jesus a question is challenging something about Jesus's authority. Okay. And the... Um, the healing of the paralytic is just one example where actually the question isn't even verbalized. The question is in their heart, like who can forgive sins? Um, and it's a challenge 
right? It is a challenge to Jesus. So where do we see this idea of disruptive influence? And what does it mean to be a disruptive influence? Well, um, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading this idea of how Jesus disruptive influence. I'm going to actually skip 13 through 17 and go to 18. Okay. So the healing of the paralytic, I just want you to note the disruption is that Jesus forgives sins. And then the question that the, uh, looks like the, uh, the scribes have is why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Okay. So the first thing is he's disruptive as a religious authority. Jesus is disruptive as a religious authority. Now in verse 18, I'm going to read now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from the from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so there's a couple different things going on. Again, if we think about this chapter in terms of Jesus as the highest authority, what is Jesus comparing himself to? Oh, you guys thought it was rhetorical. I'm really asking. What is Jesus comparing himself to? What is, what is, who does Jesus see himself as in verse 19? Who is Jesus in verse 19? I'm really asking. Yeah, he's the bridegroom. Okay, he's the bridegroom. Um, that means he's, he thinks he's a big deal because the bridegroom is a big deal. Right. And actually, I think that's the most important image because that's the image there that I think we can relate to most. Most of us don't uh, put wine into wineskins. Right. That's really hard to relate to. Most of us don't put um, unshrunk cloth in an old garment. We don't have experience with any of those things. But I'm guessing most of you have experience going to a wedding. In fact, I was at a wedding with some of you maybe a month ago, month and a half ago. Okay. And at this wedding, um, during the reception, um, there was dancing and there was, you know, decent amount of alcohol. Um, and in the course of the reception of all the dancing, um, the, the bridegroom, um, I think I can say this cause it's public it's on video. He took off his shirt. Okay. Just took off his shirt and was dancing without a shirt. Okay. Um, and then another gentleman at the wedding. Okay. Also took off his shirt. Okay. Also took off his shirt. And you know what I thought? I thought about the guy who was not the bridegroom who took off his shirt. You can't do that. You can't do that. That's not appropriate. But if you're the, if you're the groom, you can do whatever you want because it's your wedding. You're the one getting married. You can do whatever you want because it's your wedding. Do you understand? And so what Jesus is saying here is, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? No, you don't. You celebrate. Okay. If you're at a wedding and you're, and the job is to celebrate, okay, to celebrate the bridegroom, then that is what you do. Okay. So what is Jesus's point here? He is the authority that dictates what spiritual disciplines look like because fasting is a spiritual discipline. And the purpose of a spiritual discipline is to draw closer to God is to get rid of obstacles so you, so that you can come closer to God. But what's Jesus saying here? He's already close. <laughs> He's already close to you. And if Jesus is close to you, 
You can eat and celebrate because he's nearby. You don't have to fast anymore. You don't have to deny yourself um, food in order to draw closer to God because Jesus has drawn closer to you because the bridegroom has come close. And so the way to read verses 21 and 22 is to recognize that when the bridegroom is present, the other spiritual disciplines are changed. They're, they're altered. The, all, the, the way that we relate to God are become different when the bridegroom is present, okay? Um, because he is a disruptive influence, right? And, and again, let me just point out again, the John's disciples, I'm sorry, the Pharisees asked the question, why do John's disciples fast? And the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. Your, your disciples are eating because Jesus is a disruptive influence. Okay. And because he's a disruptive influence, he's also the highest authority. Now I read that part. Now I'm going to talk about the infectiousness of disease and evil. Okay. So my second point is how evil is, how disease and evil are infectious, which we, we probably understand, but maybe we don't understand how the Bible talks about it. So I'm going to read, I'm going to go backwards to chapter one, verse 40. And a leper came to him, to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Move with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him. And sent him away at once and said, to, and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and the people were coming to him from every quarter. Okay. Notice that there's two things spreading here. Right? Or two things that could spread, right? What are the two things that could spread in this section that I just read? I'm really asking. What are the two things that could spread? Leprosy. Leprosy can spread. Yeah. What else can spread? That's right. He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. The news about Jesus spreads, leprosy spreads. I don't think we have any problem recognizing that leprosy spreads, right? Because we know COVID spreads. And I want you to notice something um, because there's a language here that I think is important. In verse 40, it says, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't say heal. He says clean. Because Leviticus and all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the way that we understood disease, the way that they understood disease was being clean versus unclean. And if you're unclean, then you are infected. The idea is that uncleanliness means you're infected with something. You're contagious. And if you are unclean, you're contagious, then what should you, what should you do if someone is infectious? What's, what, what's the term we use today? What was that? Quarantine. Quarantine. Thank you. You know that well. I mean, we have been trained now, right? We've been trained after two years. If you are infectious, you need to quarantine. You need to go away. And, that, and actually, the book of Leviticus, 
Most of the book of Leviticus is about quarantine. Okay. You read that book. It's all about quarantine. It's about like seven days quarantine, 14 days quarantine, 30 days quarantine. Okay. It's just like our County guidelines, right? So there's all kinds of like quarantine regulations in the book of Leviticus because they understood the nature of an infectious disease. But what does Jesus do? It says, move with pity. He stretched out and touched him. Why would he touch him? Because the regulation was, if you have leprosy, you're not supposed to touch anyone because you are infectious. The transmission mechanism for leprosy is touch. And yet Jesus touches the man and says, I will be clean. And he makes the person clean. So there's something interesting about the way Jesus handles disease. He is not afraid to touch someone who is infected. And he actually reverses infection. Okay, Jesus reverses infection. But that's not the only thing that spreads. Let's talk about let's talk about a different kind of spreading. Well, now we talked about the good news spreading, but let's talk about let's go back to a passage that I just skipped. Let's go back to um, chapter 2 verse 13. Okay, and let's think about the whole idea of spreading. We know disease is infectious. Let's see what else is infectious. Verse 13 of chapter 2. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard, heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Wait, wait, these aren't sick people, right? They're not physically sick, at least. But he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So wait, what is Jesus comparing sick people? Or who are these sick people? Who are the sick people that Jesus is talking about? I'm really asking. Uh, maybe, yeah, probably. But what does he say? What does it say in the, what does it say in the scripture? It doesn't say non-believers. What does it say? Amen. Tax collectors and sinners. Sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners. And Levi is also a tax collector. And so I think it's good to pause for a second and go, you know, what's the story with a tax collector? Why is it so bad? I mean, tax collectors plus sinners, as if they're a separate category. Well, tax collectors at that time, they worked for the Roman government. So they were viewed as sellouts by Jew, by the Jews because they um, they charged a commission on top of they they made their money based uh, based on the commission from the taxes that they that they collected, right? And so the problem when you when you work based on commission is people are suspicious. What's really for the Roman government and what's really for you, right? And there was certainly corruption in the way that tax collectors collected taxes. Because there were certainly tax collectors who took more than they needed to in order to profit, right? And they were profiting off the Jewish people. And that's why they were viewed as sellouts. Okay, what could we, what, what is the modern day version of a tax collector? <laughs> what do you got, Enoch? NFTs. NFTs. Oh, crypto. Oh, I like it. 
Oh, I like it. I like that a lot. People who do crypto. Yeah. That, that could be like a modern day version. Right. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like pound people who do crypto too much, but like, let's do it. Let's do crypto. Let's call let's say investment bankers, definitely in the early two thousands, um, and the financial crisis investment bankers were, um, and then mortgage lenders, right. You could say we're a form of tax collector because they made money off other people. They made money at the expense of other people. Okay. And they had a reputation that went with that. So I think it's important when we read the Bible that we recognize what is the modern day, what is, what does it mean in that culture? What did a tax collector mean in that culture? And then what's a modern day equivalent, right? Probably sinners, probably, I'm not sure, but including, it could include prostitutes, right? And I'm trying to think of like other uh, categories of sinner or behavior that involves sinning as well, right? Um, I can't say drug addicts. I don't know that that was a thing at that time, right? I don't know that sinner was, that was a category, but we have to, criminals, for instance, okay? Criminals certainly is included within the category of sinner. And yet what Jesus was saying is like, these are the people that I want to spend time with, right? And yet Jesus is calling them sick. Now, why would he, why would he call them sick? Why, why would he say that? What, what about them is sick? And I think this is where the language of our culture today is actually more biblical than we think. Have you ever called someone toxic? Have you ever called a person or a company or a workplace? Have you ever called it toxic? Do you know what toxic means? It means poisonous. It means infectious. Okay, it means sick. It means diseased. That's what toxic means. And what Jesus is saying is he wants to associate with toxic people, okay? His mission was to be around toxic people. And so when we say someone's toxic, what, are, what, what do we mean by that? What, what, some of, what are some of the ideas we mean when we say that environment is toxic? This is where I wish I knew some more about your workplaces or your friends so I could call out, you know, what's a toxic environment. But what do I mean? What do you mean when you say something's toxic? I'm asking. Exactly. Exactly. So when we say something's toxic, we really do mean it's infectious. We mean it's infectious in some very specific ways. Like when you get into that environment, it gets into your head, right? And you start to think negative thoughts and maybe, maybe the environment of your work is angry and rageful, right? And then when you get into that environment, it affects you where you get rageful as well. Okay, or maybe it's just heckling, right? Maybe it's just all dirty, coarse humor. And when you get into that environment, that's what you experience. Okay, that's what toxic means. And, and that's why these Pharisees were afraid of sinners and tax collectors because they viewed them as toxic people, as infectious. And yet Jesus' point here is he doesn't, uh, he's not affected by toxic people. Okay, he's not affected by toxic people. He actually... Um, does the reverse for toxic people. He makes them clean. Now, how do we know that? Let's go back to our original story of the paralytic. Okay. Um, and let's, let's just read it. Let's just read it slowly now. One more time. I'll read. And when it turned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together. Now, why was it many? Because news had spread about Jesus so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. In Mark chapter one, it says Jesus came to preach. And so he's preaching the word that's consistent with Jesus's ministry. Verse three, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. 
And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus, and I think this is important, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I think that's really important. He didn't say he saw his faith, the paralytic's faith. He was talking about, he probably was including the paralytic, but he was also including his friends. He was also including his friends. Because this is kind of a crazy scene, right? This is a crazy scene. Like, um, if we were imagine like this room being completely full of people, right, which definitely would not be COVID safe, um, but completely full of people, and no one had access to get in, like standing room only, and then someone is digging through the roof to get inside. Like, there's a desperation there. There's a desperate, in fact, that's really offensive, right? For someone to dig through a roof, because I'd be like, you better fix that. You need to fix that roof. But these four friends were desperate to get their friend before Jesus. And they are so excited once they're able to lower them, lower him down. And then Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Which is kind of comical. Thank you for laughing. It's kind of comical because you're like, wait, uh, Jesus I think you're missing something. I think you're missing something very obvious because the whole reason we had to lower him in is he can't walk. A paralytic is paralyzed. He can't walk. I think you have missed something extremely significant, Jesus. And so there's a kind of a double scandal that's happening in this passage. The first scandal is Jesus misses out on this man's greatest need. The greatest need this man has is to be healed so that he can walk, right? No, not really, but at least the most obvious need this man has is that he needs to walk. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, it's like, that's not gonna do him any good. What is that possibly gonna help him? How is that possibly gonna help his situation? But the scribes don't even care. The scribes are sitting there going, wait, um, they, don't, they don't say in their hearts, wait, don't you need to heal him? They don't say that. That's not their first question. That should be our first question. Like, why not heal him first? But Jesus doesn't, is not concerned with that. Verse 6 says, now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Like, they're getting upset about the wrong thing. But they're, they're actually right in that no one can forgive sins but God alone because it takes the highest authority to forgive sins. It requires the highest authority to forgive sins. And then in verse 8, it says, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, take up your bed, and walk? Okay, and, that's, and this is the climax. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And I want to just take a couple minutes and talk about um, the way that we compartmentalize authority in our culture today. Okay, because we all have various silos. Like right now, as you're listening to me, you put me in the religious silo. And if I start talking like about COVID and transmission mechanisms, you're like, but Fred, you're not a doctor. You're not even a public health official, you know, because that... Those require certain expertise. In fact, if you look at medicine today, everything is about specialists, 
right? If you, if you have something going on with a knee joint, you need to see an occupational or no, you need to see a physical therapist. I got the specialist wrong. You need to see a physical therapist. You need an MRI. You need something various. You need a specialist to see the expert for your knee. Okay. That if that's, if you're having that kind of problem, but if you find like a growth on a part of your body, then you may need to see an oncologist. You need a specialist for, for growth. Cause you need to figure out if it's cancerous or not. Okay. I know enough to be dangerous. Someone's going to correct me about some of the things I say. That's okay. Because you see this, you see these as specialized expertises, right? Um, and then if you have, um, you, if you have a mental health problem, Right? If you have a mental health problem, there's a whole range of people that can deal with that. You have counselors, you have therapists, you have psychiatrists. Sometimes you have pastors, but we're increasingly like irrelevant to those that category, right? For mental health. Um, and then if you're lonely, right? If you're lonely, then we have a whole other category of people. You know, we have online dating services and meetups. We have a whole industry that goes with to help you if you're lonely, right? But what Jesus is saying is all those categories blend together in him, okay? Because he has the highest authority over everything. He has overlapping authority. That means if he has power in the spiritual realm, he also has power in the physical realm. If Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, then he also has the authority to heal disease. And this is where our culture is like completely different because we see those as all these different compartments. And yet Jesus is like, I am the cheat code. Okay. I am the cheat code for the world. Okay. What do I mean by that? Um, have any of you seen the matrix? Anybody seen the matrix? Please, please, please young people. Okay. Okay. If you're okay, but it's rated R. Okay. Sorry. So I shouldn't say that. So when you're old enough, you should watch the matrix. Anybody watch free guy. Has anyone seen the movie Free Guy? Okay, more of you. Okay, perfect. Okay. So whether it's Matrix or Free Guy, the premise of these movies is that there's an alternate universe, right? I don't think I'm spoiling too much. There's an alternate universe. And that it's possible within the alternate universe to have a cheat code, okay? To have a way in which you can alter the reality of how that universe operates, okay? You can, you can play with the boundaries of what happens within that alternate universe, and I want you to understand that Jesus's authority is he is the divine cheat code. He is a cheat code. Okay. And because he's a cheat code, he has overlapping authorities across all the things that we think are segmented. Okay. That we think have boundaries around them. He can um, eliminate those boundaries. And then this is the most important thing. If Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, and this is the thing that is most difficult to do, and that's what Jesus says first to address that maybe that's this man's biggest problem. Because I want you to imagine today that if you are experiencing, let's say just like aches and pains, or you're experiencing anxiety or depression, or you're experiencing boredom and loneliness, and if you don't, I mean, maybe you're not a human being because this has been the last couple of years, right, of our existence is all of those different things. Maybe the root problem that you're experiencing isn't a need for physical healing, but you need freedom from spiritual oppression because you are weighed down by the toxicity of sin. And I want to define sin for just a minute, okay? Sin I can talk about for a long time, but I want to define sin as attitudes 
and values and beliefs and behaviors that go against God. And sin is not just something that you do individually. Sin is part of a culture. Sin is corporate, meaning you can be sinned against. Everyone in this room has been sinned against. And you bear the consequence of others' sin against you. In fact, this reminds this passage of the paralytic reminds me of John chapter 9, where Jesus, where someone asked the question, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And really the answer is both and none. <laughs> it's both and none. Because yes, it was his parents' sin that probably led to him being disabled. I mean, that was part of the belief in that culture, is that your sin could be visited you by your parents. But it's also that man's sin. It's both. It's both of them. Because you can't escape sin. You can't escape what is happening in our culture and how narcissistic it is and how self-focused it is. You can't escape that. And the fact that he says your sins are forgiven to the paralytic means everyone has sinned because we have no idea what this paralytic did. What did he do to deserve it? But there is some kind of oppression and shame and guilt that he is experiencing because of the spiritual oppression that is happening in his heart. And Jesus is like, that is your primary need. And I want to heal you by forgiving you. And here's my last point. The nature of forgiveness is that it spreads. Jesus is a change agent of forgiveness. People infect for evil. Jesus makes clean and he spreads forgiveness. He makes toxic people healthy. That's what Jesus does. He makes toxic people healthy. Because your greatest need today, if you're wrestling with anxiety or depression or self-doubt, like for me, one of the things that I've been struggling with is I just it's hard for me to stay asleep. Okay, some of it has to do with being in my 40s. Some of it just has to do with like life, okay? And I can, but I can find someone, some, something in the middle of the night to just fixate on and not be able to fall asleep, okay? Or not be able to stay asleep. And I'm guessing all of you have struggled at one point or another with just being able to like fall asleep, just to like experience rest, there may be spiritual oppression that's happening with where you're carrying unresolved guilt or shame, maybe because of what you've done, but maybe because of what someone else has done, or maybe just because that's our culture of carrying around unresolved guilt or shame. And Jesus wants to set you free and make you clean because that's what he does. Um, and uh, the transmission mechanism for COVID is aerosol particles, right? And droplets. But the transmission medium of Jesus's forgiveness is faith. And faith operates across time and space. You don't have to be in an enclosed room for the transmission medium of forgiveness to work. And it doesn't just work even just for yourself because these friends brought this man to Jesus. And what we need when we need forgiveness is we need people who would believe, who would intercede in our behalf and bring us to Jesus, okay? Because other people's faith can heal you, okay? Other people's faith can, you can experience forgiveness. And so this is what I want to do in closing. Um, I want, I want to ask you, I want to invite you to exercise faith. I want to invite you right now to the exercise of faith because a lot of times you sit in church and you don't have to exercise faith, but I want to invite you to exercise faith at this moment. Okay. And if you believe, if you just believe a little bit in the forgiveness of Jesus, I want you to turn to the person next to you or in back. Just I want you to find someone and say to that person, 
your sins are forgiven. Okay, take a minute and let's, let's do that. Turn to the person next to you. Your sins are forgiven. I hope that that experience was awkward and uncomfortable for you. Okay, I really hope that. Um, because I think the exercise of faith um, in this public way, that awkwardness is actually important. Okay, there's actually something important about it because it's a way to uh, test the reality of what we believe. You're, you're, you're showing something, whether it's real, okay? And so I praise God if it felt awkward for you to say that to someone else. But by the way, you know, when we sing, when we sing in a church context, we are proclaiming forgiveness to one another. You're already doing that. It's awkward because I'm, 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 making, you, I'm making you do it, right? But I hope that we can celebrate that kind of forgiveness. And I'll just, I'll just say this as a prayer for myself. Um, I need people to bring me to Jesus so that my sins can be forgiven. And so when you pray for another person and when you express your sins are forgiven, you are doing that for someone else. Let's pray together. God, we praise you for the way forgiveness spreads. We praise you that you have made us change agents of forgiveness, that we no longer have to be afraid of toxic people or toxic environments, because we can enter into that environment and think about the other person and think your sins are forgiven. We can view them through the, through the forgiveness of Jesus. And so God, would we, in our moments of fear, would we in moments of anxiety, when we in our moments of paralysis, would you raise up people, friends of ours, who would come to bring us before Jesus when we did not have the strength to do it ourselves so that we may hear that our sins are forgiven and that our guilt and our shame has been resolved. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.